Praise God. Have you found the book of Philippians? If you found Philippians, say, I got it. Come on, Philippians. I'm going to be reading out of chapter 2 here in just a moment. We're going to start something new for the next several weeks. We are heading towards the uh, Easter season, resurrection celebration. And I thought, what better time than now to talk about some of the happenings that surrounded the life of Christ. In particular, uh, we will get to and focus in on Passion Week. And we'll talk about his uh, death again, his, his uh, burial, what happened those three days and three nights in the grave, what difference does it make. We'll talk about the resurrection. I also want to talk about the ascension. The ascension doesn't get taught on very much. In fact, uh, most folks don't even know what relevancy the ascension would have in their life. And, and it is very important. So uh, we're going to teach on that as well. So I think we're going to be covering uh, some new things as well as some old things. And hopefully all of that will bring some sense of revelation to your life, even though you know the story. How many of you know America knows the story, but it hadn't done them any good? So, so, so we got to get past information and get to revelation, right? I was at a, a network of related pastors conference a couple years ago in Alabama and there was a gentleman that had come to speak to us that I did not know prior to that. His name was Jim Hockaday. And uh, he had ostensibly in his life hung around in what we would call the faith camp. And I think he served uh, Brother Kenneth Hagin for a good many years, as well as his son, Kenneth Hagin Jr. Uh, he uh, was an expert, if I can use that phrase, in the faith message. And whenever I hear the faith guys talk, I kind of like that. I didn't grow up in the faith movement. And to be candid with you, I grew up in the doubt movement. That's what I grew up in. I, doubt and unbelief. That was, we, I mean, we were always doubting God. I mean, if God did a miracle, it was out of his sovereignty because it sure enough wasn't because we believed him for it. And so I always, I always liked hearing the faith guys. And I understand that there were, there were precepts and teaching that went on in the faith movement that probably were tangential and, and they probably got twisted. And I get that. I know people mess things up at all sorts of levels. But I always liked listening to the faith movement because it built up my faith because I felt like I was so lacking in that area and, and wasn't taught very well in that area. And so uh, Jim Hockaday came and he started teaching on faith and he had a revelation that he shared with us. I'll never forget, we were, we were at a resort center there on the Gulf, Alabama Gulf Shore and a beautiful setting. And there we were in the meeting room and, and he began to share this revelation on the inner man. And as he began to share it, there, you know, you know, you're getting a hold of revelation when your inner man begins to jingle. You know, I like to define revelation as this. It's when you hear instruction that is, I hate to say new, but fresh or maybe new to you. And all of a sudden, something in you begins to leap to that inside. And that's when you know you're getting revelation is when you feel that leaping towards that truth. That's, that's that God part of you that's gravitating toward himself, really, because it's the instruction that's coming out of whatever teacher or minister that may be there. And my, my inner man was certainly leaping. I call my baby was leaping. I, I'm a man and I can't be pregnant, but you know, you can be pregnant in the spirit and the baby was leaping. And uh, I knew something was very important here that I needed to hear. And it caused me to go on this pursuit to understand in greater depths and in greater ways, what exactly Jesus had provided for me. You see, the reason Christians, I believe, are weak 
and impotent and confused and powerless is because we have forgotten or we have neglected what manner of people we are in Christ Jesus. You understand that if you've received Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're a new kind of person. I, I, I mean, there was an old uh, saying that, that I'm not exactly sure how it went, but I'm just going to undo it right now. You know, when you meet the Lord, it's not like He's putting a new suit on an old man. But He makes a new man as well as give him a new suit. So when you met Jesus, you just weren't cloaked in righteousness. Which is good because indeed you were. I mean, I'm not suggesting you weren't. I'm, I'm just saying it's not just being cloaked in righteousness. But the Scriptures we will soon see tells us that we've actually changed. Something about us has changed. We're not the same person we once were when we came in contact with the Lord. Now, the reason for others they, they may be powerless or impotent or confused is because there's certain things they just don't know. Now, again, that doesn't make you evil or bad. But, you know, the Scripture tells us that what we don't know will kill us. And, and if we're ignorant to some things, um, we won't be living all that Jesus has provided for us to live. And so, so that needs to change as well. Um, I just got back from New Orleans and... You know, in New Orleans, and some of you may know this because you just you've been around, but you know they start cranking up for Mardi Gras about a month in advance. I mean, Mardi Gras to them is almost like Christmas to the rest of the world. I mean, when I got to New Orleans, it was just wild—all the beads and stuff that's just going, and how they promote Mardi Gras. And you understand what Mardi Gras is, don't you? Mardi Gras is basically the Tuesday before you enter into Lent, which is the forty days prior to Easter. Now, I don't know where they got this from. I don't understand it. I don't know the mindset. But basically, you let it rip potato chip on Tuesday. Because on Wednesday, you got to give something up. So it's like you feed the flesh. Like all those. I mean, in Mardi Gras, maybe it used to be a day. They've made it a month now. Because how many of you know, it's nice to feed the flesh for a long time. So they go berserk in that time period. And then Wednesday, supposedly... You know, they ought to do just sort of a, some sort of a poll on that. How many people really go into Lent after Mardi Gras? I mean, I would really be curious as to see the statistics on that. I, I got a feeling everybody practices Mardi Gras, but even few practice Lent. But who knows? But uh, 40 days of celebration of the flesh, and then they go into this 40-day Lent period, which is they're giving something up, you know. I remember years ago, I was in the Methodist church, and we practiced Lent, and I always tried to, you know, give something up. I always tried to convince my mom, you know, let me give up Brussels sprouts. I give up Brussels sprouts, but that never worked. So anyway, um, we've got this whole part of our culture, religious culture, practicing even these, to us, obvious, uh, twisted, convoluted things. And we wonder why we're powerless. And we wonder why we're impotent. And we wonder why God doesn't move. And we wonder why it doesn't seem like our prayers are answered. And we wonder why there's no supernatural dimension. In fact, the time I was in New Orleans several years ago, I was catching a cruise with my wife. I think it was on our 25th wedding anniversary, maybe 20th. But I remember we were just taking this little tour and went down to that famous 
uh, a Catholic church that was in the middle of the famous square, you know, where I think Andrew Jackson's horse, he's riding his horse or whatever there in the middle of that square. And they had tables with psychics that were set up all in front of the church. I mean, it couldn't have been 10 to 15 paces from the front doors of the church. They had tables with psychics, voodoo happenings, all sorts of things, not 15 paces from the front door of the church. And can I just share this with you? Something's wrong when the devil can set up his pop stand 15 paces from your front door. In that egregious a manner. So, so we've got to come to terms with why, why isn't it happening? Why isn't it happening like I'd like to see it in my life? It's not just we're sitting around pointing at every. Why isn't it happening in your life or your life or your life? Why isn't it happening in your life? In my life. And, and I think it's because we've not understood the full magnitude of what Jesus came and provided for us. So let me read just some verses to you again. And, and, and we're going to just we're going to walk through this on the next several Wednesday nights. And we're going to get to all the wonderful happenings. And we're going to talk about his descension, his ascension. We'll talk again about the death and the resurrection. But I need to get just some initial introductory concepts into your system. And if you'll get this, it'll help us understand better what's going on. So uh, my lesson tonight, I've entitled the restoration to our rightful state, the restoration to our rightful state. Philippians two, verse five, it says this, let this mind be in you. Who's you? Yeah, man. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, uh, he was equal with God and he was, I mean, when you're God and you're equal with God, you can, you know, you handle that. It's not something that you had to consternate over. Verse seven, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. All right. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Restoration to our rightful state. Now, Jesus, we're going to go through some interpretation here. This is Wednesday night. OK, this is like Bible study. OK, this isn't like inspiration time. This is like Bible study time. It may be inspiring, but. We got to study the word when Jesus lived his life before us. He literally lived it at two levels. Now, this is called the incarnation. We've talked about it before. Incarnation is basically God enfleshing himself in man. So there were two aspects of Jesus life as it was demonstrated before us. The first aspect is, of course, his divinity. That's the line you can fill in. You can put divinity in there if you want. It was his divinity. What that means is, is that he was the son of God. We just read here that he was equal to God. Jesus wasn't a little bit lower than God. He was God. Are you following me? He wasn't something in between God and angels. He was God. He was very God. And he will find out he was very man. Jesus himself said, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He would say, I and the father are one. I mean, he would say things like this over and over again. 
I actually had someone ask me one time, they said, well, if Jesus did so many great and wonderful things and he was healing people, raising people from the dead, well, then why would anybody want to kill him? Because basically the intimation was that somehow it's ridiculous to even believe that he died and he raised like the like the the gospel says that he did because nobody would want to get rid of a guy like that. Well, let me just tell you something. Jesus was fixing to put religion out of business and religion dies screaming. Okay, when you run around like you are in the midst and saying, hey, I'm God. Now, when we look back at that, we say to ourselves, makes makes. Hey, that makes sense. But can you imagine some dude running around saying, I'm God? I'm, I mean, you're, you know, tilt. But that's who he was. That's his divinity. But this is the side, interestingly, that is usually emphasized in church circles. This is the part we relegate most of how he lived his life and how he functioned. When we read whether we understand it or not, whether we've even identified the filter, but when we read the life of Jesus, more often than not, we read his life and we say to ourselves, yep, that's my Savior, that's my Lord, that's Jesus, he was God, and no wonder he could do the things he did because, hey, he's God, right? And, and so instantly, whenever we read what he did, we, we, we automatically tie into his divinity because he did some pretty remarkable things, didn't he? Have you done some of the things he did? I hadn't. So that's how we explain it. He's God. But what we've missed is, is that Jesus lived at two levels. There are two aspects. The first one being divinity. The second one being humanity. It says here that he came pouring himself out, coming in the likeness of men. He was human. In fact, to be a high priest, as the scripture says that he was, he had to be a man. In fact, he, he, he had to have humanity in him in order that he could uh, walk before God and not just identify with God, but he could identify with me. See, that's why there were high priests. High priests just didn't get voted into the job. High priests were were people that came down a particular lineage or family line. And the reason they were who they were and the reason that we needed a high priest was that he could identify with the people. He understood the people. He understood what was going on in the people. And so when he is the high priest came before God, he literally represented before God all the people. And he would bring, of course, the, the blood and, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat on the day of atonement. And, and a high priest, that was his job. His job was certainly to, to act as a go-between between God and man. But a part of the reason he was man was because he identified with men. And that was why Jesus was a high priest as well. He had to become a man so he could mediate. So he was flesh and blood. Jesus experienced life. He experienced challenges and temptations. I've mentioned this before. I know that Jesus was sinless and he never sinned. But truth is, I believe Jesus had to have been tempted. Otherwise, his victory would have been something that he could not have identified with me about. You see, I'm really tempted. You're really tempted. Temptation's a real deal. And if the possibility of sin isn't there, then what's temptation? But temptation is only real because I could do that. And to be candid with you, there are moments my flesh is really talking to me. But praise God, because of power, 
in your life and my life through him, we could overcome temptation. But in order for him to understand that, he had to be tempted legitimately. He experienced these things. He was limited in where he could be at one time. When Jesus was on this earth, he couldn't be everywhere at once, could he? So he, he could, just like me, he could only be at one place at a time. He was restricted by his earthly body. There were things, believe it or not, there were things Jesus could not do when he was on earth. The scripture says one time he could, do not, uh, he could not do many miracles in Nazareth because of doubt and unbelief. So literally, he was shut down in some of the things that he might have even wanted to do. Now, I share this with you because this is the part of the story of Jesus, I think, that gets neglected and overlooked. If everything about Jesus is simply ascribed to his divinity, then to be candid with you, he really isn't a legitimate model that you or I can look to and get help from. Because you see, I'm never going to be God. I'm never going to be omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. I mean, that's, that's not me. That's not in my job description. And so if I look at Jesus and I simply say, well, sure, Jesus can do what he did. Sure, Jesus can uh, function all the ways we see him function because he's God. Then what that does at that moment is it, it takes away from us the ability to see what it is that he was trying to model before us. If his miracles and his life are derived from only his divinity, then of course it makes a great story, but it has no real relevance for me because I can't do what he did. Now, I know some of you are running down the road too fast on me. You say, well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says I can do what he did. Exactly. Exactly. But, but somehow or another, we forget that or we neglect that. Would you not think that if, if, if you were Satan or if I were Satan, God forbid. But would you not think that you would be most happy to keep the church immobilized by just having them believe that only Jesus can do that. No one else can do that. Just he can do that. And as long as somehow he could perpetuate that thought inside of you and he could shut you down and he could keep you from aspiring or keep you from from grabbing hold of something which is beyond you and supernatural, exceedingly abundantly above that which you could ask or think? Don't you think that if you were the enemy, the best thing you could do is somehow keep, keep that quiet? I mean, they're already saved. I've lost them for eternity. Let's not do any more damage to the kingdom of darkness. But if we are awakened, we will find out that we are destined to model Jesus in what he could do. And if God wants to restore us to this possibility, then think about this for just a minute. You would be, and I would be, unstoppable. I mean, hell could not prevail over us. Our circumstances would not take us out. We would do the exceeding abundant things. But our problem is, is that we've lost this or it's been neglected or ignored. And, and my whole purpose these next few weeks is that I want to share with you exactly what Jesus provided, the model he sets before us, and potentially how you and I can grab hold again of a life that maybe we've lost and we can begin to live again. Now, I, I want to just share with you what I've called here, how this possibility, this restoration possibility, was presented to us. And again, I'm just giving you some introductory thoughts here. How this restoration 
possibility was presented to us. Number one, right in there, the picture of dominion. The picture of dominion. The picture of dominion. Jesus did amazing and remarkable things. Why? Why did he do it? Well, he did it to demonstrate what was possible when God lived inside a man. Everything Jesus did was to demonstrate how life could be lived. Jesus, when a guy had not, no eyeball, he would reach down, spit in the dirt, form a mud ball, and he could create an eye. Isn't that amazing? He would speak to trees, and they would wither. With one word out of his mouth, he could stop storms. He walked on water. You know the story. He multiplied food. He turned water into wine. He made fish jump into Peter's net. Now think about all the amazing things that Jesus did. And think about that being a model. And, and before you go somewhere, I'm going to have to pull you back from. I understand that most of the church world looks at that. And this is what they say. Yeah, 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 yeah. I believe that story happened. But, but he was Jesus. He was Jesus. You see, you have relegated these things to his divinity. I want to challenge you just with the thought that when Jesus came, according to Philippians 2, he poured himself out, it says there, of all his divine rights, and he came as a man. He grew up before us. He faced the same things we faced. He faced hunger. He faced thirst. He faced the limitations that all of us face, and yet he begins to demonstrate this amazing and incredible life. These amazing miracles begin to accompany him. And, and you know, some people have a tough time with this. I don't. I just, I just share it this way. I honestly believe that as you watch his life, there is an increasing of the revelation of who he is, because you remember at the beginning he used to tell people, shh, don't tell them who I am. Remember that? He'd go around going, shh. My time is not yet. Shh. But as you go through the gospel accounts, there becomes this greater awareness and a greater awareness as to who he is. Well, no, not only is that happening, but as you begin to watch the gospel account, there begins to be greater demonstration and greater instruction and greater teaching and greater miracles and greater healing. I mean, yes, you see people who are being raised from the dead early in his ministry. In fact, oftentimes he'd get there right at the moment and they'd be raised from the dead until finally you get to the scene with Lazarus where he's been dead for four days, stinking in the grave. Now think about that. He lets it go for four days, the scripture says. Now, it's not, it's not hard to believe. Maybe if you're functioning in the fullness of God that you could raise a person up rather quickly and you could do this a time or two. But now all of a sudden, this miracle where Lazarus is dead, he's stinky, there is no way, no how he's going to be raised. You can't fake this one. He's been gone too long. All of a sudden, life comes to him. He's raised up. That's pretty notable. Fairly notable miracle. And I know what we say. We say, ah, but he's Jesus. Can I share this with you? I was just going through the Old Testament and all of a sudden under an old covenant, I found a guy like Moses who was able to part a sea. Would you say that's notable? Now that's an old covenant. Why, why Joshua parted a sea too and Elisha parted. All of them parted seas. It's a sea parting party. And they're all Old Testament saints. Don't have what we would think half of what we got. 
But their parting ceased. Isn't it amazing that Joshua prays a prayer? And I know the Bible says that the sun stood still, but we all understand what that means. It means the earth went... And then it started again. Amazing. Peter, we get to the New Testament now. Peter, his, his, his very shadow begins to heal people. Paul, Paul begins to praise God and there's an earthquake that shakes open doors. As I read through the Bible and I read all of these things, what it demonstrates to me is that these things are possible. Not just for Jesus. Well, sure, it ought. he ought to be able to do it. But these things, folks, come on. They could happen and should happen in our life. You say, well, have you done any of that? Well, some of it no, some of it yes. Some of this word I have done, some of this word I have not done. But I tell you what it makes me do. It makes me press in so that I might know and I might embrace all that's available. It's not God's fault, it's my fault. And, I, and I'm on a on a pursuit to see more of that happening. Now, that's why Jesus came. He gives us a picture of dominion. What should life look like? How should life be approached? What, what, what's, it, what's, it gonna, what's it going to appear to be? That's what Jesus gives us. He gives us a picture of dominion. All right? Number two. He shows us the process of establishing dominion. The process of establishing dominion. Now, this, this point, you really you, you need to get a hold of it and keep coming back every Wednesday night. Now, you've got to be here on Sunday, too. But every Wednesday, you need to come because this is the part I'm going to zero in on a little bit. You see, Jesus' life was a template for restoration. One level is Him doing what we could not do ourselves in order to redeem us. Now, this is the part 99.9% .9 of Christian believers understand totally. That Jesus came and he provided for us what we could not do ourselves. When we couldn't save ourselves, he saved us. When we could not uh, reach out to God, God reached down to us. These are the things that we know, Gospel 101, absolutely true. God sent, he enfleshed his son, divinity, in full human form because we didn't have a clue as to how to get to him. All right? So that's what we teach. That's important to know. But the thing, once you become a believer, once you receive God's free gift of His Son that you couldn't earn, you couldn't work for, but it was a free gift that you just have to accept. Once you get that revelation operating in your life, then you have to go, I believe, to this other aspect or other level, so to speak, where we see Him demonstrating to us how we too are to walk and begin to see some of the same fruit and results. I'll just give you some examples here. Number one, I've already mentioned. Jesus looked at his disciples, including you and me, and these are the words he said. He said, the works that I do, you shall do. Right? And greater works than these. Now, either Jesus lied or something's wrong. See, he's saying, he said, what I have done, you're going to get to do. Now, hear me now, I'm talking about a template. It is true, Jesus, Jesus carried a cross, did he not, in order to go to Golgotha's hill, placed on the cross, and he died, right? That, that's gospel. Is it also not true that the Bible says that you and I are to carry our cross, right? 
And does Galatians 2.20 not say that we're to be crucified with Christ? Are you following me? You say, okay, what does all that mean, Pastor? It means this. See, Jesus was giving us a template that Passion Week of how power and exaltation comes into a believer's life. He very... He, he vividly demonstrates these things. And he wasn't doing it just in order. I shouldn't say just in order. That's an incredibly important thing. But he was not doing that only to just redeem us uh, for eternity, as critical, as important as that is. But he was demonstrating to us what exactly must take place in our life. Because he turns to us and he says, just like I'm going to carry my cross and die on a cross, you're to carry your cross. And you're to be crucified with me. The Bible says that the same power that raised Jesus Christ up from the dead will raise us up in the newness of life. Isn't that amazing? The Bible says that, that you and I are joint heirs with Him. And, and not only that, Paul goes on to say that you and I are seated in heavenly places with Him. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the ultimate ascension, all of these things are templates. Now, obviously these things had to happen in order for us to be redeemed, but these things also become templates by which you and I are restored into our rightful place as children and heirs of God. Do you begin to see that literally, literally the Christian life is to begin to walk this same thing out? All right? That's the process. And we're going to look at this, this process. Because as we look at this process, we can all say, glory to God, hallelujah, wonderful. Jesus did all this for me. He sure did. But not only did he do it for you, he modeled it for you. In order that you can begin to see resurrection power. And all that was available in that come to pass in your life. And then finally, number three, you can write down the position of dominion. The position of dominion. And so we have the picture of dominion, the process of establishing dominion, and then the position of dominion. The Gospel of John, early, he writes in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, meaning Jesus, to them he gave the right... He gave the right or he gave the authority to become children of God. So when you receive the Lord, you have the right, whatever right, I mean, he doesn't enumerate those rights yet, but you have the right as a child of God to begin to function as he did. And this is what the enemy has done, I believe, in our current culture. He has, he has done his best, even within church world, to keep us focused on a mentality of naturalness. Naturalness. Hey, if you're following me, can you say amen for a minute? I know you're listening. Come on. Naturalness. What do I mean? He's keeping us focused on naturalness. I hear people who have decades ago received Jesus. Decades ago received Jesus. Who will... Maybe give testimony or somehow it will come up in a conversation and they will say these words. I am a, I'm just, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, well, you were the moment you encountered his grace. 
But you see, the moment you encountered His grace, something happened. There was an empowerment that came. There was a transformation that should have come. And you were no longer a sinner, but you became, the Scripture tells me, righteous. So I'm not now a sinner saved by grace. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says. But you see, if the enemy can keep you focused on natural, if he can keep you focused on sin and not on righteousness, then what he ostensibly can do is he can shut you down because until you begin to understand who you are and what you can do in Christ Jesus, if forever you're in the mode of, I'm just, I'm just me, I'm just little old me, I'm just a human being, I'm not much of anything, I'm just a little speck in God's, in God's you know, great beach of people. You know, I'm not perfect, I'm forgiven, but I'm not perfect. If you let the enemy keep you there, you will never see dominion as it's been promised. You see, we preach a victorious gospel. What that means is, is that there is nothing so large in this world or in the enemy's arsenal that can really take me out if God's operating in me. I mean, do you believe that? I believe that. I don't believe there's any sin that's bigger than that cross. I don't believe there's anything more powerful than the blood of Jesus. I believe the blood breaks every chain every bondage, every addiction, every sin. It doesn't matter what you're facing or what you think is so large. I'm telling you, that cross, Paul said it this way, the cross is the power of God. Now that's victorious talk there. Victorious talk. And so what happens is, though, we, we kind of buy into this thing and the enemy kind of veils us to that because if he can keep us veiled to what we have and who we are, then we sink back into the natural. And as long as I'm in the natural, nothing supernatural will ever take place. See, that's why, see, people think I'm just a big yeller and I'm just a hard guy. Listen to me. This is important. This, is, this doctrine has has practical ramifications. If all we preach for is a decision from people, now listen to me, if that's all we teach people is come make a decision for Jesus. And I believe sincere people come and sincere people want to make a decision for Jesus. I'm not questioning sincerity. I believe that out of a decision, it would be possible to be adopted by the Lord, to be justified by the Lord, out of a decision, I believe that if you made a decision, he could slap the gavel and he could justify you at that moment. And you could be declared righteous and that's called imputed righteous. He just, he slaps the gavel and he just says from this time forward, when I look at you, I'm no longer going to look just at you, but I'm going to see you through the blood and, and I declare you to be righteous. Whether you are or not, I'm going to declare you to be righteous. And I believe that that could happen out of a decision for the Lord. But listen to me, the Bible doesn't teach just decision. The Bible promises conversion. And that's been... That's been the missing link at altars. It's been the missing link in the church today is we call people out for decisions. And that's good. I believe it starts with a decision. You need to make a decision. I'm not slamming a decision. But we've got to begin to declare and preach conversion because out of conversion comes transformation. Conversion means I'm not what I was, but I've become something new. You're not just putting on me a robe of righteousness and I'm the same old man, but indeed I get my robe and I get a new man inside this robe. 
That's the difference between Jesus imputing or just declaring you to be righteous and what the Bible says that he imparts righteousness. In other words, he makes you different. Now, I'm going to read this again because I just I keep going over it. And if no one else gets it in Charleston County, legacy is going to get this. Second Corinthians 5.16. Listen to this. Second Corinthians 5.16. He says, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. It's a really important thing. He says, I know we've seen Christ naturally. But now we know him thus no longer. What's he saying there? He's saying we're seeing beyond just the natural. Verse 17, he applies it now into the believer's life. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Now, I'll tell you what the Greek says. It's so vivid, it actually means something that has never existed before. That's why we call this moment being born again. It's as if you get to pop out of mama's womb all over again. It's like it's a new start. You're not the same person. You're you're, you're changed. You see things different. You're hearing things different. All of life becomes different. Why? He says here, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become what? New. Something that has never existed before. You're like new. And I realize not everybody has to live up to my personal testimony and, and, and people don't have to live up to your personal testimony. But can I just share with you one more time that when you come and you say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I was wrong. I repent. I, I receive the grace of God that empowers me to turn from my old life. And I'm going to walk in a newness of life. That walk is not a walk of the same person that was there asking for forgiveness. But at the moment, his grace falls on you and he declares you to be righteous. It begins to transform you and change you and convert you. And as you walk, it's not, oh, I hope he helps me. You are a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. That's why there's tears and, and, and that's why there's that cleansing and that's why people, people arise and they go, what's happened? And I just believe that's why we preach conversion here. I'm not, I, I mean, I'm sure people come and they get things and they don't get things and I'll keep giving invitations and we'll keep believing God with people. But, but that's the part we've not understood. You're not this same old person trying to walk like Jesus. You're now this brand new person with Jesus inside of you. That says greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. That now I'm able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ask or think according to the what? The power that's working where? In me. This isn't theory. And you see, here's the key. I'm to the place now you can preach great sermons and I listen to great sermons and hopefully, you know, we'll throw out a good one every now and then. But here's the point. This is not theory. It's not just doctrine. It's not just theology. This has to be actuality. Say, well, you there? Nope. But I'm. I'm in pursuit. Because it's not his fault. 
Let me just show you the depth of this substitution. Have mercy. I, give me two minutes. First Corinthians, you're right there. Five. Uh, excuse me, it should have been 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21, so you're right there. Now listen to this. It says, for he made him, if you've been doing counter, you'll hear me when we talk about the cross. I use this verse. For he made him, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to what? Be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that verse tells me, watch this now. I'm just reminding you all. When Jesus went on the cross, he, it, this, this wasn't just a, 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 an illustration of God's love. This wasn't just, this wasn't just sort of a, a uh, you know, just sort of a dramatic, vivid picture that we would forever remember because we just needed to remember what all the metaphors and similes and things were. The scripture says, he became sin. In other words, all that you were, and I'm believing, if we have believers here. All that you were was placed upon him. You know that I'm not the mother sinner saved by grace. I'm not perfect. I'm, you know, all of it's thrown on him. He became sin. He literally became sin. He didn't become like sin. He became sin. In order, the scripture says that you and I might become what? Now hear me when I say this. This wasn't theory, was it? I mean, this was a real deal. That's what sin, that's what sin does to you. Some people literally believe that he was almost transfigured on the cross. Literally, sicknesses and diseases came upon him. He was so marred by what had taken place that the ravages of sin literally manifested upon him because he became sin. But here's the thing. In the substitution, as he became sin, what did he substitute? His so this isn't theory. This isn't theory. He became sin that I might become the righteousness of God. I'm like this brand new, never have existed before person. I mean, yes, I existed as a human being. I walked 18 years of my life in rebellion to God, living all out for the devil, laced with sin and, and, and iniquity and rebellion. But the day came that Kevin bared through his sins upon the Lamb. And as he took my sins, he threw his righteousness upon Kevin Baird. And at that moment, a transformation, a conversion took place that I became the righteousness of God. Now, I always have people say this. You don't, yeah, that means you do everything perfect. No. That's the problem. Is, is that we still are in our, in our flesh, man. There's still our senses. And sure, there's struggles and challenges and temptations. No, I don't do everything perfect. But I'm not allowing my imperfection to become my doctrine that I'm going to live in. And so in John 10, and I, I've, I've got to quickly go. And I'm going to leave you with just a, 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 a teaser. You know how they used to end those old Saturday black and white, like Flash Gordon or cop shows, and something was about ready to hit you, and then they just stop and say, tune in next week. I remember those old Batman things. Batman would be in some, he'd be, he'd be tied up somewhere. They ain't no way out. 
but he always got out by next week. I'm going to leave you just a little teaser, and I'm going to challenge your religion. If there's any religion in you, it's going to get challenged here just a little bit. But let me tell you, religion, religion hasn't caused us to overcome. It's our relationship with the Lord. It's our relationship in him that will cause us to overcome. I can't read the whole thing to you. In John chapter 10, Jesus is in this big argument with the Pharisees, and this is what is said. The Pharisees are ready to stone him because they say, beginning with verse 33, that he's making himself out to be a God. And Jesus in verse 34 answered them and says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. Now turn over to Psalm 82 real fast. Hurry, hurry, hurry. The kids are going to come out and they're going to run in here and we're going to miss it. Psalm 82. There's this psalm in here. And it talks about God standing in the congregation of the mighty in verse 1, Psalm 82. He judges among the, what does it say there? The gods. Now, I'm here to tell you, if he's in the congregation of the mighty, who is the congregation of the mighty? Come on, it's, this isn't hard. It's us. And then he says he judges among the gods. And all of a sudden we go, Hoo! are you saying we're gods? No, 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 no. I'm not. Listen, I'm not God. Everybody can see that. Jesus had hair. Right, just so we got that clear. But he quotes Psalm 82. And then in verse 6 is where the quotation comes from. It says here, I said you are gods. It would probably be better translated because it uses the word Elohim in the tense that says rulership. You know, God was Elohim as well. But, but literally, you are rulers. All of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Now, this is the part that I just want to leave you with just to sort of get you thinking. Now, I understand. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not incarnated like Jesus was. I'm not fully divine and fully human. I am very much fully, fully, fully human. I am not in any way suggesting in a new age context. And this is what I hate about the devil is that he will take concepts in God's word and then he twists them. And then he makes us afraid to go there because, because we're afraid we'll be like them. It's just like the concept of new age. Jesus said the acceptable year of the Lord. A lot of people don't realize you can translate the acceptable year of the Lord in Luke 4, 18 and 19 as literally the dawn of a new age. And what the enemy did was he's twisted that into an error and into something that God and his word does not teach, but it's twisted, it's counterfeited, and then we get scared because we don't want to be that. And that's exactly what the enemy does to us. He counterfeits something and he makes us fearful and we go, well, we don't want to be that. I'm done taking my cues from the enemy. Jesus quotes this word back to him. And basically what he's saying to the Pharisees is this. He's saying, why are you getting riled at me? I'm not the first one who's ever said this. There in your own scriptures, God looks at the congregation of the mighty. And he said, I said, you are little g gods or rulers. The sense of dominion. I, I, I said, you are rulers. You're my children. You're heirs. You're joint heirs. He says, why are you riled at me? Your own word says that. And it causes the Pharisees to pause for just a moment. And something I think supernatural happens because the Bible says he just walks right through there. And they don't even touch him. But this is the part that I want you to start getting a hold of because we're going to celebrate it in this Easter season. The Bible says that Jesus is king of what? Kings. He said again, he's king of, king of, 
He's Lord of... Who do you think the little K and the little L is? See? You're kings. You're priests. That's what the Scripture says. There is a dimension of dominion that awaits, I believe, that will eclipse even the book of Acts. Don't you walk out of here and say, pastor's preaching new age stuff and we're all little gods. I didn't say that. I said, I said this, I'm an heir and I'm a joint heir and I am a child of God. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I know what people mean when they say that and they're twisting it to make it mean something that I'm not teaching. But I am saying in this Bible, it tells us that there is a dimension of dominion that you and I have not accessed. I'm still going to die. If if Jesus tarries, I'm dying. How many of you know God doesn't die? Well, let me put it to you this way. Maybe I ought to backpedal on that just a little bit. Because I know a guy by the name of Enoch. Who had a relationship with God in such proportion that the Lord said, you ought to just come up and be with me. You know, maybe... Instead of watching the television set to get all our signs of the times in order to figure out how close we are, maybe, just maybe, maybe if the church would get revelation and arise, there will come a moment when God looks at us in that glory and says, well, there's no sense you all being down there anymore. Why don't you just come on be with me? Just something to think about. This is where I'm in. Whatever, whatever is in here, I want it. I don't, I don't care if a denomination doesn't teach it. I don't care if you didn't get it in catechism class. I don't care that in confirmation class they never covered this subject. I don't care if it's in here. I want it. I want it. But in order to get it, we're going to have to learn that we're going to have to die to ourselves, aren't we? We're going to have to learn what it means to carry our cross. We're going to have to learn what it means to descend into hell. Anybody ever felt like I've descended into hell a time or two? Just didn't know what to do once I got there. But I'm telling you, resurrection power awaits us. I took a few extra minutes. I'm sorry, but it's important. I I, I want to ignite a hunger in you. To once one more time apprehend all that's available in Christ Jesus. Amen. Stand with me. Amen.